Your program tells you that his subject today is C.S. Lewis on time and eternity. Let's welcome Dr. Peter Kraft. What strange people you are. You have sacrificed some of your time to come here to think about time. You have made time for Lewis to tell you about what is time for Lewis. Perhaps you are like the theologian who, after death, was given the choice to go to heaven or to a lecture on heaven and chose the lecture. <laughs> Why go to Lewis for this lecture? Lewis said little that was utterly original in philosophy and theology. He stood on the shoulders of giants like Augustine. And Augustine famously warned us not to expect an easy time studying time. His most famous statement about time goes something like this. If you don't ask me what time is, I know, and so does everyone. If you ask me, I find that I don't know, and neither does anyone. We are here to think about time and eternity. But isn't the concept of eternity even more difficult than that of time? So isn't this a wild goose chase? To be perfectly honest, I expect that much of it will be. But although we will probably not catch the wild goose of the understanding of time and eternity, we may catch some loose goose feathers or even some goose droppings. <laughs> and this goose is precious. I will not be your guide on this journey. Lewis will. I will be your guide to your guide, a matchmaker between you and Lewis, to tell you what I have learned from him about time and eternity. I will do little more than organize it and add a few comments. I make no apologies for being thus unoriginal, for I know that in 60 minutes you are better fed by 40 minutes of Lewis's words and 20 of mine than vice versa. I find seven major insights in Lewis about time and eternity. We begin with three general principles. First, Lewis's rejection of historicism, universal evolutionism, and the myth of progress. Second, Lewis's Platonism and belief in eternal archetypes. And third, Lewis's traditional theological principle that grace, which comes from eternity, does not rival, reject, bypass, or demean nature and time, but redeems, perfects, and fulfills it. Fourth, we apply this principle to the classic problem of predestination and free will, especially as concerns petitionary prayer. Fifth, we explore our future time experience after death and discover that time has many dimensions, that change does not end after death, that salvation and damnation are retrospective, and that heaven's eternity is not the same as hell's. Sixth, we conclude with some fearful truths about the eternity of truth and the moral law, and seventh, some wonderful truths about eternity and joy. Instead of tediously repeating quote-unquote, I will use the device of simply raising my hand to receive Lewis's words, as if from heaven, and lower it from my own. 
Lewis uses the term historicism for three different errors. We could call them historical rationalism, historical relativism, and historical optimism. He defines historical rationalism as the belief that men can, by the use of their rational powers, discover an inner meaning in the historical process. Historical relativism is the denial of any trans-historical, trans-temporal reality, whether platonic forms or absolute moral goods. And the third, historical optimism, is the myth of inevitable and universal progress. All three arose in modern post-Christian culture. Naturally, since God designed us to worship him, we can't change ourselves, the worshiping subjects. All we can do is change the objects of our worship and commit what Lewis called the vulgarest of vulgar errors, that of idolizing as the goddess history what manlier ages belabored as the strumpet fortune. Lewis's argument against historicism in the first sense, claiming to discern the meaning and purpose of history without divine revelation, is simply that we ride with our backs to the engine. We have no notion what stage in the journey we have reached. Are we in Act 1 or Act 5? Are our present diseases those of childhood or senility? A story is precisely the kind of thing that cannot be understood till you have heard the whole of it. But we have not yet read history to its end. History is indeed a meaningful story, but it is his story. Lewis's argument against historicism in the second sense, that is, reducing questions of eternal truth to questions of temporal opinions, is also simple common sense. The historical point of view, put briefly, means that when a learned man is presented with any statement in an ancient author, the one question he never asks is whether it is true. He asks who influenced this ancient writer and what phase in the writer's development or in the general history of thought it illustrates, and how it affected later writers, and how often it has been misunderstood, especially by the learned man's own colleagues. <laughs> Lewis satirizes this attitude under the memorable rubric of chronological snobbery, which he defines as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age, the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. You must find out why it went out of date. Was it ever refuted? And if so, by whom? When? And how conclusively? Or did it merely die away as fashions do? If the latter, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. From seeing this, one passes to the realization that our own age is also a period and certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions. These are likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so ingrained in the age that no one dares to attack them or feels it necessary to defend them. And that is why Lewis advises us to read old books rather than new ones. Every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. By the way, this is true historical relativism, judging history relative to truth, not truth relative to history. Therefore, we all need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period, and that means the old books. Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no cleverer then than they are now. 
they made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing, and their own errors, being now open and palpable, will not endanger us. Learning from the past and the respect for it that is called tradition is simply the democracy of the dead, as Chesterton put it, as opposed to the small and arrogant oligarchy of the living. And not only does the past have as much truth and goodness and beauty in it as the present, but it is still alive. For humanity does not pass through phases as a train passes through stations. Being alive, it has the privilege of always moving, yet never leaving anything behind. Whatever we have been, in some sort, we are still. Historicism number three, the myth of progress, is refuted simply by facts, by observation. No one looking at world history without some preconception in favor of progress could possibly find in it a steady up gradient. There is often progress within a given field over a limited period, a school of pottery or painting, a moral effort in a particular direction, a practical art like sanitation or shipbuilding may continuously improve over a number of years, but it is always interrupted by barbarian invasion or by the even less resistible infiltration of modern industrialism or else more mysteriously it decays. Lewis locates the primary source of the fatal pseudo-philosophy called historicism in Darwinism. With Darwinism as a theorem in biology, I do not think a Christian need have any quarrel. But what I call developmentalism is the extension of the evolutionary idea far beyond the biological realm, its adoption as the key principle of reality. To modern man, it seems simply natural that an ordered cosmos should emerge from chaos that life should come out of the inanimate, reason out of instinct, civilization out of savagery, virtue out of animalism. The idea is supported in modern man's mind by a number of false analogies, the oak coming from the acorn, the man from the spermatozoan, the modern steamship from the primitive coracle. The supplementary truth that every acorn was dropped by an oak, every spermatozoan derived from a man, and the first boat by something so much more complex than itself as a man of genius is simply ignored. The modern mind accepts as a formula for the universe in general the principle almost anything may be expected to turn into almost everything. <laughs> Without noticing that all the parts of the universe under his direct observation tell a quite different story. I grew up believing in this myth. And I have felt and still feel it's almost perfect grandeur. Let no one say we are an unimaginative age. Neither the Greeks nor the Norse ever invented a better story. <laughs> but there is a fatal self-contradiction which runs right through it. The myth cannot even start without accepting a good deal from the real sciences. And the real sciences cannot be accepted for a moment unless rational inference is valid. For every science claims to be a series of inferences from observed facts. But the myth asks me to believe that reason is simply the unforeseen and unintended byproduct of a mindless process. If my mind is a product of the irrational, how shall I trust my mind when it tells me about evolution? 
the fact that people of scientific education often cannot, by any effort, be taught to see this difficulty confirms one's suspicions that we here touch a radical disease in the whole modern style of thought. The myth of universal progress contradicts, for it denies both the creation and the fall. For Christianity, the best creates the good, and the good is corrupted by sin. For universal evolutionism, the very standard of good is in itself in a state of flux. What, then, for Lewis, transcends the historical process? God, of course. And God is, among other things, mind. And in the mind of God are what Augustine called divine ideas. Plato called them forms. Jung called them archetypes. Archetypes do not arise from history. For history itself, as his story, is a primary archetype. As St. Thomas Aquinas explains, summarizing in a single sentence the whole biblical and medieval cosmology, in the emergence of creatures from their first source is revealed a kind of circulation or circular movement in which all things return as to their end back to the place from which they had their origin in the first place. The cosmos is a great circulatory system. Its heart is God, Alpha and Omega. He pumps the blood of being through the arteries of divine creation and receives it all back through the veins of creaturely action, centering on human willing, most especially the work of Christ, the cosmic mediator. The image of a story, a journey, a road of life is built into the essential structure of the universe. From the acorn striving to become an oak to the sinner striving to become a saint, the universe is the story of time seeking eternity. E.T. trying to get home. As we shall see, that is the explanation for Sehnsucht. That is why storytelling has, from the beginning, been mankind's primary art form. That is also why stories are our favorite art form. As Chesterton said, there are only two things that satisfy us forever that never bore us, a person and a story. Paradoxically, the very temporal dynamism of a story arrests us because it suggests some eternal archetype beyond story and process and time. As Lewis says, to be stories at all, they must be series of events. But this series, the plot as we call it, is really only a net whereby to catch something else. The real theme usually is something that has no sequence in it something other than a process, more like a state or a quality. Giant ship, otherness, desolation are examples that have crossed our path. The well at the world's end. Can any man write a story to that title? This internal tension in the heart of every story between the theme and the plot constitutes, after all, one of its chief resemblances to life. We grasp at a state and find only a succession of events in which the state is never quite embodied, except in the Incarnation. If the author's plot is only a net, and usually an imperfect one, a net of time and event for catching what is not really a process at all, is life much more? Lewis's Platonism also enabled him to write the best description of symbolism I have ever read in the allegory of love. 
It is in the very nature of thought and language to represent what is immaterial in picturable terms. What is good or happy has always been high like the heavens and bright like the sun. Evil and misery were deep and dark from the first. To ask how these married pairs of sensibles and insensibles first came together would be great folly. The real question is how they ever came apart. This fundamental equivalence between the immaterial and the material, and correlatively the eternal and the temporal, may be used by the mind in two different ways. On the one hand, you can start with an immaterial fact and then invent visibilia to express them. This is allegory. But there is another way of using the equivalence, which is the opposite of allegory, and which I would call symbolism. It is possible that our whole material world is in its turn the copy of an invisible world. The attempt to read that something else through its sensible imitations, to see the archetype in the copy, is what I mean by symbolism. The allegorist leaves the given to talk of that which is confessedly less real, which is a fiction. The symbolist leaves the given to find that which is more real. To put the difference in another way, for the symbolist, it is we who are the allegory. Symbolism comes to us from Greece. It makes its first effective appearance in Plato. The sun is the copy of the good. Time is the moving image of eternity. All visible things exist just insofar as they succeed in imitating the forms. These forms, or archetypes, are the engines of Sehnsucht, the magnetos that move the iron filings of our deepest desires for joy. That connection is clear at the end of the last battle, where Lewis, in a creative tour de force, dares to picture the attainment of the eternal archetype of a whole world the temporal world of Narnia, after its temporal death. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter, for Aslan told us older ones that we could never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And yet it's all so different, said Lucy. Listen, Peter, said the Lord Diggory, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow, or as waking life is from a dream. His voice stirred everyone like a trumpet as he spoke these words. But when he added under his breath, it's all in Plato, all in Plato, bless me, what do they teach them at these schools? <laughs> the older ones laughed. It was so exactly like the sort of thing they had heard him say in that other world where his beard was gray instead of golden. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. 
so the eternal archetype is not an escape from the temporal thing. It is the fulfillment of it. That is the philosophical way to put it. The theological way is that grace, which being divine is eternal, redeems and preserves and perfects nature, which is temporal, rather than suppressing it, demeaning it, escaping it, or rivaling it. Most Jewish and Muslim theologians would accept this principle too, but it is historically verified in Christian theology by the incarnation, the resurrection, and the ascension. By the incarnation, all aspects of nature, present in human nature, are united to the divine nature. And by the ascension, this whole human nature is taken to heaven to eternity. So since divinity united humanity with itself, and since divinity is eternal and humanity is temporal, eternity united temporality with itself. Lewis explains this difficult theological truth much more simply in Mere Christianity. We picture God living through a period when his human life was still in the future, then coming to a period when it was present, then going on to a period when he could look back on it as something in the past. But it is really, I suggest, a timeless truth about God that human nature and the human experience of weakness and sleep and ignorance are somehow included in his whole divine life. God has no history. He is too completely and utterly real to have one. For to have a history means losing part of your reality because it had already slipped away into the past and not yet having another part because it is still in the future. In fact, having nothing but this tiny little present, which has gone before you can speak about it. God forbid we should think God was like that. But in our fallen world, there must be a death and resurrection in order for humanity and time to attain divinity and eternity. And this death and resurrection must be freely chosen. That is why life is dramatic and why hell is possible. In the great divorce, an ugly lizard sits on a boy's shoulder, whispering temptations into his ear. But after the boy gives the bright spirit permission to kill it, it turns into a beautiful stallion. Seeing this, the narrator asks his teacher, George MacDonald, am I right in thinking the lizard really turned into the horse? Aye, but it was killed first. You'll not forget that part of the story. I'll try not to, sir, but does it mean that everything, everything that is in us can go on to the mountains, to heaven? Nothing, not even the best and noblest, can go on as it now is. Nothing, not even the lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. An important application of the principle that grace perfects nature is that human free will is perfected by God's predestination rather than eliminated. Both the Calvinist and the Arminian make the same mistake in seeing these two as either or rivals. As Lewis puts it, we profanely assume that divine and human action exclude one another like the actions of two fellow creatures so that God did this and I did this cannot both be true of the same act except in the sense that each contributed a share. 
We have nothing that we have not received, but part of what we have received is the power of being something more than a receptacle. For grace perfects nature. Lewis explains Boethius's classic solution, more clearly than Boethius himself ever did, to the classic conundrum of God's infallible foreknowledge and human freedom by distinguishing God's eternal knowledge from human temporal knowledge. If God foresaw our acts, it would be very hard to understand how we could be free not to do them. But he does not foresee you doing things tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them. Because though tomorrow is not yet there for you, it is for him. You never suppose that your actions at this moment were any less free because God knows what you are doing. Well, he knows your tomorrow's actions in just the same way. Or even more simply, the syllable pre lets in the false notion of eternity as simply an older time. Lewis ratifies this theology of reconciling freedom and necessity by his own experience. The experience of a choice he once made which was simultaneously totally free and totally necessary. His conversion, as he describes it in Surprised by Joy. I felt myself being, there and then, given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I chose to open. I say, I chose. Yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. You could argue that I was not a free agent. But I am more inclined to think that this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than most that I have ever done. Necessity may not be the opposite of freedom. Freedom or necessity, do they differ at their maximum? At that maximum, a man is what he does. There is nothing of him left over or outside the act. I think Lewis used this experience as a model for Ransom's choice in Perilandra to obey Malaldil's will and not his own inclinations in accepting the hard task of killing the unman. The thing was going to be done. There was going to arrive in the course of time a moment at which he would have done it. The future act stood there, fixed and unaltered, as if he had already performed it. You might say, if you liked, that the power of choice had been simply set aside and an inflexible destiny substituted for it. On the other hand, you might say that he had been delivered from the rhetoric of his passions and had emerged into unassailable freedom. Ransom could not, for the life of him, see any difference between these two statements. Predestination and freedom were apparently identical. I suspect that Caesar's crossing the Rubicon... Luther's, here I stand, and Frodo's, I will take the ring, though I do not know the way, must have felt exactly the same. Both totally free and totally fated, or destined, as indeed they were. In fact, we all know that freedom and destiny are not contradictory, even if we cannot understand what we know. For we know it not from philosophy or theology, which we do not understand very well, we know it from stories, which we all understand quite well. The plot of every good story, real or fictional, always unites freedom and destiny, freedom and necessity, freedom and predestination. For if there is no free will, we cannot identify with the characters. And if there is no destiny, we cannot trust the author. 
No determinist ever wrote a good story. Look at Skinner's pitiful attempt in Walden II. Nor has a nihilist, absurdist, deconstructionist ever written a good story. Although Beckett's Waiting for Godot is a very funny non-story, and Sartre's Nausea is a profound one, though profoundly pitiful. Confusion about the relation between eternity and time is one of the sources of both the error of universalism, or automatic universal salvation, and the error of predestination, in the literal sense. George MacDonald explains this to the narrator in The Great Divorce. In, in your own books, sir, said I, you are a universalist. You talked as if all men would be saved. You can know nothing of the end of all things, or anything expressible in these terms. If you put the question from within time and are asking about possibilities, the answer is certain. The choice of ways is before you. Neither is closed. By the way, the Scotch have an answer to the question, do you say it neither or neither? It's neither. <laughs> Any man may choose eternal death. All who choose it will have it. But if ye are trying to leap on to eternity, if ye are trying to see the final state of all things as it will be, for so you must speak, when there are no more possibilities left but only the real, then ye ask what cannot be answered to mortal ears. Time is the very lens through which ye see. Every attempt to see the shape of eternity, except through the lens of time, destroys your knowledge of freedom. Witness the doctrine of predestination which shows, truly enough, that eternal reality is not waiting for a future in which to be real, but at the price of removing freedom. And wouldn't universalism do the same? This may seem like high and palmy stuff for theologians and philosophers, but it has a very practical and pastoral application for all who pray. I remember my son asking me this question when he was about 10. Can I change God's mind when I pray to him for something? I think he wanted desperately for the Red Sox to win the World Series just once before he died. I thought to myself, if I give him the theologically correct answer, no, you can't change God, then he'll stop praying. Quite reasonably, it seems. So I said, yes, just like you can change my mind when you ask me for something. Now, this wasn't literally correct, but it was biblical. Far better to preserve our database, our human image of God as Father, and thus preserve religion, that is, lived relationship with God, even at the expense of literally accurate theology, than vice versa. I think I said the right thing to my ten-year-old, but how do we adults explain it to ourselves? How do we unify our faith and our reason, our religious experience and our theology? Lewis formulates the question very simply. Can we believe that God ever modifies his action in response to the suggestions of men? Apparently not. For the thing you ask for is either good for you and for the world in general or not. If it is, then a good and wise God will do it anyway. If not, he won't. In neither case can your prayer make the difference. Lewis then refutes this argument with a reductio ad absurdum. If this argument is sound, surely it is an argument not only against praying, but against doing any work, whatever. 
In other words, work and prayer, or physical work and spiritual work, are in the same boat. God, says Pascal, instituted prayer in order to lend to his creatures the dignity of causality. But not only prayer. Whenever we act at all, he lends us that dignity. For he seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. That is grace perfecting nature. The reason we have a problem seeing this is that we are in time, not eternity. And we think unconsciously that our way of seeing things is at least as real as God's, if not more real. As Screwtape comments to Wormwood, don't forget to use the heads-I-win-tails-you-lose argument. If the thing he prays for doesn't happen, then that is one more proof that petitionary prayers don't work. If it does happen, he will be able to see some of the physical causes which led up to it, and therefore it would have happened anyway. And thus, a granted prayer becomes just as good a proof as a denied one that prayers are ineffective. You, being an eternal spirit, will find it difficult to understand how he gets into this confusion. But you must remember that he takes time for an ultimate reality. He supposes that the enemy, like himself, sees some things as present, remembers others as past, and anticipates others as future. Or, even if he believes that the enemy does not see things that way, yet in his heart of hearts he regards this as a peculiarity of the enemy's mode of perception. He doesn't really think, though he would say he did, that things as the enemy sees them are things as they are. Radical thought. Things as God sees them are things as they are. Ponder that for a moment. Even in our temporality, we have an eternal dimension. By the way, in this passage, I do not think that Lewis is denying the reality of our temporality. That would be a kind of docetism or Gnosticism. But he does say something that sounds suspiciously close to this in letters to Malcolm. Though we cannot experience our life as an endless present, we are eternal in God's eyes. That is, in our deepest reality. Our creaturely limitation is that our fundamentally timeless reality can be expressed by us only in the mode of succession. Now, if Lewis means here that we can only know in a temporal way our reality which is really timeless, I think he is wrong, as Kant was wrong in making time only a limitation of our consciousness and not a mode of reality. But I don't think Lewis means this. When he says that our fundamentally timeless reality can be expressed by us only in the mode of succession, I think he means that our eternal reality can only be lived temporally. And this seems perfectly right, especially as applied to prayer. As he says in the same book, if our prayers are granted at all, they are granted from the foundation of the world. God and his acts are not in time. Intercourse between God and man occurs at particular moments for the man, but not for God. If there is, as the very concept of prayer presupposes, some adaption between the free actions of men in prayer and the course of events, this adaption is from the beginning inherent in the great single creative act. When my daughter at the age of five was diagnosed with an incurable brain tumor, she's fine, it was either a miracle or a misdiagnosis, I asked many people to pray. One was an atheist student. 
And he was amused and said, I'll do it. And I told him that uh, she was cured afterwards. Uh, and he asked me some medical questions uh, to refute my notion that his prayer could make a difference. Uh, it was a tumor that had been put in her at birth a juvenile astrocytoma. And he said, well, you see, uh, my prayer couldn't possibly have changed things because causality can't work backwards. And I said, yes, it can. God from all eternity in creating her foresaw your prayer. And yours was the vote that swayed the election. <laughs> How will we experience time after death? First of all, we will. Though the blessed will participate in the divine nature, they will do so always in a mode which does not simply annihilate their humanity. Otherwise, it is difficult to see why the human species was created at all. To make the life of the blessed dead strictly timeless is inconsistent with the resurrection of the body. So again, Lewis uses the principle of grace establishing nature. But there are more possibilities than just the two of being in time or out of time. We are now on the road that leads beyond the Tower of Kronos. There is, even now, in addition to the time of the body, or Kronos, the time of the soul, or Kairos. Many other languages have a separate word for this, but English does not. Kairos is measured not by movement through space, but by movement toward the good, the end, the purpose. There is also a third kind of time, the time of pure spirits or angels, which the medievals called avum. This is duration, unlike eternity, but it is not a gradual continuum because there is no matter. And Lewis suggests a fourth possible time, the dead might experience a time which was not quite so linear as ours. It might, so to speak, have thickness as well as length. Like Rivendell in The Lord of the Rings. Time doesn't seem to pass here. It just is. A most remarkable place altogether. Already in this life, we get some thickness whenever we learn to attend to more than one thing at once. I don't understand that. I have ADD. One can suppose this increased to any extent, so that though for the blessed dead, as for us, the present is always becoming the past, yet each present contains unimaginably more than ours does. I think that would explain why those who catch a glimpse of heaven from this life, whether through God-given mystical experiences or through the more ordinary near-death experience or out-of-the-body experience, often see the inhabitants of heaven as simultaneously old and young. Often, little children who are too unphilosophical to make it up and too inexperienced to copy it from others say things like this, I saw grandma in heaven and she was an old lady and a middle-aged lady and a little girl all at once. When Lewis's narrator meets George MacDonald in The Great Divorce, he writes, I had not yet looked one of the solid people in the face. Now, when I did so, I discovered that one sees them with a kind of double vision. Here was an enthroned and shining God, whose ageless spirit weighed upon mine like a burden of solid gold. And yet, at the very same moment, here was an old weather-beaten man, one who might have been a shepherd. 
And, true to the principle that grace preserves and perfects nature, and therefore time, and therefore the past, we will find the presence of the past in the present, as at the end of the last battle. Why, exclaimed Peter, it's England, and that's the house itself, Professor Kirk's old house in the country, where all our adventures began. I thought that house had been destroyed, said Edmund. So it was, said the fawn, but you are now looking at the England within England, the real England, and in that inner England no good thing is destroyed. I think one reason we will need more time after death is that we need more change. From the before that we still are in our last moment of time on earth, still full of follies, selfish instincts, and bad habits, to the after that we will be in deep heaven, described by perhaps Lewis's most unforgettable passage, the one at the end of The Weight of Glory. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption which you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these two destinations. This destiny is the conclusion of a process which, for most of us, is not fully completed in this world. As Lewis put it in Man or Rabbit, we are to be remade. All the rabbit in us is to disappear. The worried, conscientious, ethical rabbit, as well as the cowardly and sensual rabbit. We shall bleed and squeal as the handfuls of fur come out. And then, surprisingly, we shall find underneath it all a thing we have never yet imagined. A real man, an ageless god, a son of God, strong, radiant, wise, beautiful, and drenched in joy. We are to be remade, perfected purified, purged. This is what we Catholics call purgatory, though I don't think it helpful to be picky about the term. Lewis, himself adamantly Anglican and not Roman, wrote about this something which I believe both Catholics and Protestants should find quite believable. The Reformers had good reasons for throwing doubt on the Romish doctrine concerning purgatory as the Romish doctrine had then become. I don't mean merely the commercial scandal. In Thomas More's Supplication of Souls, purgatory is simply temporary hell. Worse still, Fisher says that the tortures are so intense that the spirit who suffers them cannot for pain remember God as he ought to do. Here, the very etymology of the word purgatory has dropped out of sight. Its pains do not bring us nearer to God, but make us forget him. It is a place not of purification, but purely of retributive punishment. The right view returns magnificently in Newman's Dream of Garantius. The saved soul at the very foot of the throne begs to be taken away and cleansed. It cannot bear for a moment longer with its darkness to affront that light. Religion has reclaimed purgatory. Our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Would it not break your heart if God said to us, It is true, my son, that your breath smells and your rags drip with mud and slime, but we are charitable here and no one will upbraid you with these things nor draw away from you. Enter into the joy. 
Should we not reply, with submission, sir, and if there is no objection, I'd rather be cleansed first? It may hurt, you know. Even so, sir? I assume that the process of purification will normally involve suffering. But I don't think suffering is the purpose of the purgation. The treatment given will be the one required, whether it hurts little or much. No nonsense about merit. Another remarkable feature of our post-mortem time experience, according to Lewis, is that we will find both salvation and damnation to be retroactive. Causality can't work backwards in material things or in material time, in chronos. But it can do that in the spiritual time, or kairos, that transcends material time, as spirit transcends matter. How? New choices can't change the events of the past, but they can change the meaning and purpose and proper understanding of these events, as the resurrection changed the crucifixion. And even Christ's wounds, which are now badges of glory, George MacDonald explains this to the pilgrim in The Great Divorce. Both good and evil, when they are full grown, become retrospective. Not only this valley, but all their earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. Not only the twilight in that town, but all their life on earth too, will then be seen by the damned to have been hell. This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have but this and I'll take the consequences, little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. And the bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. That is why at the end of all things the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. How then is our heaven eternal? And how is hell? We've already seen that heaven's eternity includes rather than excludes time because grace perfects nature. Lewis further details this principle in Miracles when he says the old field of space, time, matter, and the senses is to be weeded, dug, and sown for a new crop. We may be tired of that old field. God is not. Well, what will it be like? In heaven itself, time will change, as is suggested at the end of the last battle. Jill and Eustace remembered how once long ago they had seen a great giant asleep and been told that his name was Father Time and that he would wake on the day the world ended. Yes, said Aslan, while he lay dreaming, his name was Time. Now that he is awake, he will have a new name. This point is important, I think, not just theologically, but psychologically. We do not desire a strictly timeless heaven. We desire, like St. Paul, not to be unclothed, but reclothed, to find not the formless everywhere and nowhere, but the promised land. 
Our conception of heaven is not unconnected with the fact that the specifically Christian virtue of hope has in our time grown so languid. Where our forefathers, peering into the future, saw gleams of gold, we see only the mist, white, featureless, cold, and never moving. Well, what of eternity in hell? Well, first of all, it is not the same because hell is not parallel to heaven like Earth and Mars. This helps us to answer a very difficult problem about heaven and hell. The objection that no charitable man could himself be blessed in heaven while he knew that even one human soul was still in hell. And if so, are we more merciful than God? At the back of this objection lies a mental picture of heaven and hell coexisting in unilinear time as the histories of England and America coexist. So that at each moment the blessed could say, the miseries of hell are now going on. But I note that our Lord, while stressing the terror of hell with unsparing severity, usually emphasizes the idea not of duration, but of finality. Consignment to the destroying fire is usually treated as the end of the story, not as the beginning of a new story. That the lost soul is eternally fixed in its diabolical attitude, we cannot doubt. But whether this eternal fixity implies endless duration, or any duration at all, we cannot say. Our natural tendency to see eternity as merely endless time creates another problem. Namely, the apparent disproportion between eternal damnation and transitory sin. And if we think of eternity as a mere prolongation of time, this is disproportionate. But we should reject this idea of eternity. If we think of time as a line, which is a good image because the parts of time are successive and no two of them can coexist, that is, there is no width in time, only length, we probably ought to think of eternity as a plane or even as a solid. Just as width is not more length but another dimension of space, so eternity is not more time but another dimension. But of what? Not of time or of duration, of life itself perhaps, of existing. Yet heaven and hell, though infinitely different, are both eternal. What will the experience of eternity be like for the damned? In that hideous strength we see for a terrible instant the gates of hell, in Lewis's account of the damnation of Frost, a scene reminiscent of and probably influenced by Charles Williams' similarly terrifying, because similarly believable, picture of the damnation of Lawrence Wentworth in Descent into Hell. Frost went to the garage. He piled all the inflammables he could think of. That tiresome illusion, his consciousness, was screaming in protest. His body had no power to attend to those screams. Like the clockwork figure he had chosen to be, his stiff body poured out the petrol and threw a lighted match into the pile. Not till then did his controllers allow him to suspect that death itself might not, after all, cure the illusion of being a soul. Nay, might prove the entry into a world where that illusion raged infinite and unchecked. Escape for the soul, if not for the body, was offered to him. Just as it was offered to the nameless, hapless suicide in descent into hell, who accepted it and was saved. A remarkably healing and hopeful scene to many people who have known the terror of a loved one's suicide. 
he became able to know and simultaneously refused the knowledge that he had been wrong from the beginning, that souls and personal responsibility existed. He half saw, he wholly hated. The physical torture of the burning was not fiercer than his hatred. With one supreme effort, he flung himself back into his old illusion. In that attitude, eternity overtook him, as in the old tales, sunrise overtakes and turns them into unchangeable stone. At the end of the great divorce, the narrator, not yet ready for heaven, confronts the same event, the eternal sunrise. Ten thousand tongues of men and angels sang, it comes, it comes, they sang, sleepers awake. One dreadful glance over my shoulder I essayed, not long enough to see, or did I see, the rim of the sunrise that shoots time dead with golden arrows and puts to flight all phantasmal shapes. Screaming, I buried my face in the folds of my teacher's robe. The morning, the morning, I cried. I am caught by the morning, and I am a ghost. The sun, of course, is a natural symbol of the light of supernatural truth, the Logos. It is truth that is eternal, and necessary, and unchangeable, and universal, and unavoidable, and non-negotiable. And this truth is the essential nature of both heaven and hell. Heaven is truth embraced. Hell is truth refused. Thus, we could even say that heaven and hell are the same objective reality, experienced in opposite subjective ways. Metaphorically, heaven and hell are the same place. Think of the dwarfs at the end of the last battle. Or think of a rocker and an opera buff sitting side by side at a rock concert or an opera. What is hell to one is heaven to the other. So the very fires of hell may consist of the eternal truth and goodness and love of God, that is, ultimate reality, every creature's ultimate other. Those who have cultivated what Lewis calls the taste for the other love it when it finally appears. Those who have suppressed and resented this taste are shocked and squashed by the other, like Sartre in No Exit, proclaiming the precise creed of the damned, hell is the other's. This eternal truth that simultaneously blesses the blessed and damns the damned is not something abstract. It is the face of God. That is why Job was totally satisfied, even while he was still on his dung heap, and even though God gave him no answers. As Oriwell wrote at the end of Till We Have Faces, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Only words, words to be led out to battle against other words? There once was a man who said, I am the truth. Unless this man was the greatest liar in human history, truth is a person. Light has a face. And so does darkness. As Ransom discovered on Paralandra in the presence of the unman who had become wholly and finally possessed by a demon. It came into Ransom's mind that in certain old philosophers and poets he had read, the mere sight of devils was one of the greatest of the torments of hell. It had seemed to him till now merely a quaint fancy. And yet, even the children know better. No child would have any difficulty in understanding that there might be a face, the mere beholding of which was final calamity. As there is one face above all worlds, 
merely to see which is irrevocable joy. So at the bottom of all worlds, that face is waiting, whose sight alone is the misery from which none who beholds it can recover. And though there seemed to be, and indeed were, a thousand roads by which a man could walk through the world, there was not a single one which did not sooner or later lead either to the beatific or the miserific vision. Thus the damned might recite the exact words of Psalm 139, but as a complaint, a protest, in fact a definition of hell. While the saintly psalmist and his spiritual children recite it as a hymn that defines the very essence of heavenly joy, to be known by God, to be engulfed in light as a fish in water, to breathe an air heavy with angels. This is the weight of glory. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou discernest my thoughts from afar. Thou searchest out my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou dost beset me behind and before and layest thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy hand shall lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, let the darkness cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee. The shortest and surest road to sanctity and salvation is absolute honesty total love of truth and refusal of all darkness. Another word for this is the practice of the presence of God or the love of the holy face. That is why his chosen people loved the law so much. It was their connection with eternity. That is why Lewis, in reflection on the Psalms, called the 19th Psalm the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. He wrote... The poet asserts that the law is true. A modern logician would say that the law is a command, and that to call a command true makes no sense. The door is shut might be true or false, but please shut the door can't be either. But I think we all see pretty well what the psalmists mean. They mean that in the law you find the real, that they are based on the eternal nature of things, the nature of God. His laws have emeth, truth, intrinsic validity, rock-bottom reality, being rooted in his own character. For there were many other roads which lacked truth. And the temptation was to turn to these terrible rites in times of terror, when, for example, the Assyrians were pressing on. But when a Jew looked at those false worships, when he thought of sacred prostitution, sacred sodomy, and the babies thrown into the fire of Moloch, his own law, as he turned back to it, must have shone with an extraordinary radiance, like mountain water, like fresh air after a dungeon, like sanity after a nightmare. Insofar as this idea arose from the contrast to the surrounding pagans, we may soon find occasion to recover it. Christians increasingly live on a spiritual island. Perhaps we shall all learn, sharply enough, to value the clear air and sweet reason of the Christian ethic, which in a more Christian age we might have taken for granted. Lewis wrote those prophetic words in 1961. Since then, the pagan religions of 
sacred prostitution, sacred sodomy, and babies thrown into the fire of Moloch have become establishment practices in the civilization formerly called Christendom, and even in some segments of the church. If we do not see these as perverted religions, as idolatries, and not just defective moralities, if we do not see where they ultimately come from and lead to, and who is their controller or commanding officer, then we are inexcusably naive. We have been warned. Lewis's severest warning is in a simple, shocking four-word title, The Abolition of Man. A man without a chest, a conscience, an awareness of the moral law is not a man. But a moral relativist seems to be a man without a chest. Can mankind survive without this intravenous connection between the beating, changing human heart and the heart of the eternal God? If not, will the abolition of man prove to be the most prophetic book of the 20th century? That is up to the 21st century. That is up to us. Finally, very briefly, our dearest demon Lewis, joy is inextricably connected with eternity. Lewis explains the connection in a letter to Sheldon Benalkin in A Severe Mercy. If you really are the product of a materialist universe, how is it you don't feel at home there? Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? Notice how we are perpetually surprised at time. How time flies. Fancy John being grown up and married. I can hardly believe it. In heaven's name, why? Unless indeed there is something in us which is not temporal. Van Auken wrote to Lewis about an amazing experience which he called the David Copperfield effect, which he experienced after the death of his young wife, Davy. I quote this because it is so typical of Lewis that Lewis might have written it himself. And Lewis himself, reading it, wrote back to Van Auken that this is a very good analogy, most true and important, and probably an earnest of the mode in which all will reveal themselves to all in heaven. Immediately after Davy's death, I experienced the amazing phenomenon of the flowing back to me of all the Davies, of all the years, the whole Davy, the eternal Davy, even as we hold all the David Copperfields once we have closed the book. We are then in an eternity with reference to the book's created time. I was being given an eternal view of Davy. I was, in some sense, looking into eternity. What did that mean? That the barriers between time and eternity were not so impassable as one had supposed? We have all had similar glimpses of the eternal. Take the single word England. The name summons up at once the England of Drake and of Churchill. Or Athens. All it was and still is buried beneath the centuries. I saw with immense clarity that we had always been harried by time. All our dreams back there in Glen Merle had come true. The schooner Grey Goose under the wind, the far islands of Hawaii, the dark blue rolling Pacific, the spires of Oxford. But all these fulfillments, however wonderful, were somehow incomplete. Temporary. Hurried. We wanted to know, to savor, to sink in, to possess the experience wholly. But there was never enough time. Something always eluded us. 
Yet why? Time is our natural environment. We live in time as we live in air. And we love the air. Who has not taken deep breaths of pure, fresh country air just for the pleasure of it? How strange that we cannot love time. It spoils our loveliest moments. I believe the longing for eternity is built into us all. If indeed we all have a kind of appetite for eternity, we have allowed ourselves to be caught up in a society that frustrates this longing at every term. Half our inventions are advertised to save time. The washing machine, the fast car, the jet flight. For what? Never were people more harried by time. By watches, by buzzers, by time clocks, by schedules. There is in fact some truth in the good old days. No other civilization of the past was ever so harried by time. You might reflect on the simple question, why is it that all our time-saving devices, summed up in the word technology, have produced this situation in which we have far less time than we ever had before we had these time-saving devices? We do not know how eternity will fulfill time's longings and reverse time's tragedies, but we know that it must, because grace will perfect nature. To make that point, I conclude with the most Lewis-like passage I have ever read outside of Lewis from Tom Howard's autobiography, Christ the Tiger. This, I believe, is what we will hear. Behold, I make all things new. Behold, I do what cannot be done. I restore the years that the locusts and worms have eaten. I restore the years which you have drooped away upon your crutches and in your wheelchair. I restore the symphonies and operas which your deaf ears have never heard, and the snowy massif your blind eyes have never seen, and the freedom lost to you through plunder, and the identity lost to you because of calumny and the failure of justice. And I restore the good which your own foolish mistakes have cheated you of. And I bring you to the love of which all other loves speak, the love which is joy and beauty, and which you have sought in a thousand streets, and for which you have wept and clawed your pillow.